This is On Mike with Jordan Rich, where conversation is alive and well, and I'm proud to say I get a chance to cover all kinds of stories. Today, it's the largely untold story of the very first time the FBI profiled a criminal to catch a killer. We're talking today with Ron Francel, best-selling author of The Darkest Night, and his latest book, which I could not put down, Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer in the birth of FBI profiling. Ron has authored 18 books and has been hailed as one of this country's best narrative nonfiction writers. So join us as we explore a true crime story of great significance with the author of Shadow Man, Ron Francel, who joins us now on Mike. This story captivates me as it does hundreds and thousands of readers. And uh, boy, it, it really ties in with the sudden mania uh, that people have for serial killers and profiling and all that. But Ron, tell us a little bit about how you stumbled upon this story or came upon this story to begin with. Uh, Jordan, first of all, thank you for having me. It's, it's my privilege. Uh, I'll start by saying the secret of my success as a writer has always been that I never pick a story that I can screw up. Uh, and Shadow Man struck me as one of those kinds of stories. Universal stuff like a mother's anguish mm-hmm. and the persistence of these uh, investigators and yours and my fear the dark. So uh, starting there, this this story appealed to me. I was working as a senior writer at the Denver Post covering the evolution of the American West when I first came across this story. But at that time, it, uh, it, it was a very brief mention of it, mm. uh, and it just sounded like a, a, a simple kidnapping that caused the FBI to do its first profile. Right. That's all I knew, and I stuck it away. Uh, it was years later, more than a decade later, that I came back to it and found out that uh, it was not just a simple kidnapping. It was something much more. Right. Uh, it was this grotesque series of crimes in a part of the country where I grew up. That's interesting, Ron, because had this been Los Angeles or New York or any major city and in, in getting a lot of press coverage instead of Montana, which is beautiful country, it might have been a story earlier. But uh, let's let's set the stage with the crime itself that kicked this thing off. And then I want to get into the investigation. But it's back in 1973 and a little girl, and this is just so chilling, is in a campground with her family and somebody takes her, snatches her right from the tent. Want to give us a bit more of the background? This little girl, Susie Yeager, seven years old, she's with her family from Michigan. And they're traveling west on this grand summer vacation. Uh, They end up in this campground in rural Montana. Uh, and they, they just have a great time there. The night before they're to leave, uh, four of the five kids kind of jam themselves into a tent in the middle of this campground, uh, uh, surrounded by other campers. The, uh, the, so the four of them are there, and you can imagine they're all crammed in. In the morning, uh, one, of the, one of the kids wakes up, and and notices that the the back of the tent has been opened, and more, she she notices that her little sister is gone. She 
gets up very quickly thinking little Susie's probably out in the park playing around. It's before dawn, so it seems unlikely, but maybe she's gone to the bathroom. This sister, though, this older sister, can't find Susie. So she raises an alarm. The parents get up. uh, They roll out, and, and they look for Susie. In time, Everybody realizes mm. this is this is this, she didn't just disappear on her own. This is why I guess the FBI is involved from the early start because of the kidnapping thought. Correct. Correct. Um, yeah. But that goes back to the Little Lindbergh law when Charles Lindbergh's right. baby was kidnapped in the thirties. Right. So you have these amazing, I'm going to call them amazing characters because they don't look like superheroes on TV. They look like ordinary gents, but they're extraordinary people. And the first one, uh, besides the local constabulary that's looking into this, which has its issues, Pete Dunbar is an FBI guy. And and we all think of, Ephraim, if you're old enough, Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. in the suit and tie and the perfect hair. Right. But Pete is a, it seems like a real regular guy and he's from that area, I guess. So he's the one who starts in to try to find out what happened to this little girl, I guess. Exactly. And yeah. and Pete Dunbar shows up very early, uh, within hours, in fact, because he's from there. Now, let's bear in mind that he's been with the FBI for some time. He's a veteran agent. He's been in, in big cities. He's investigated big crimes. But uh, he comes home to Montana because his parents are ill. He asks to be reassigned. And so on this particular day in June of 1973, he's he's the one who calls. He catches this case. And he goes out there and and gets the lay of the land. Pretty soon, uh, a thousand people, a thousand volunteers are literally out beating the bushes looking for this little girl. But it's unsuccessful. Uh, Pete is Flat-footed, he he has no mm. uh, no leads, no evidence, uh, no witnesses, and of course, then no suspect. We're talking about a book. The subtitle is most important to Shadow Man: An Elusive Psycho Killer and the Birth of FBI Profiling. I've interviewed a lot of folks involved, including John Douglas, uh, over the years, but the prequel to all the stuff that we see on TV and all the books and all the the information about profiling. So let's take that part of the story, and then I'll come back to the victims and the families and the and the final catching of the killer. These guys, uh, I hope I say his name right, Howard Teton, is that the way you say it, or Teton? Correct, Howard. Okay. Howard Teton and Pat Mullaney. They are not the, uh, the heralded uh, experts at that point. They've got an idea, and I guess Hoover wasn't too keen on that idea. Do you want to take us through the uh, the evolution of Pat and Howard and why they're so important to the story? Well, you're absolutely right. You know, we we can't turn on the TV and watch a crime drama or see a movie mystery or even pick up any, you know, crime novel that doesn't feature profiling in some form. Um, It's easy to think that the cops have always been intuitive about this stuff, but in fact, it's less than 50 years ago that these two FBI agents formulate the idea that, you can look at crime scene evidence and and deduce a lot about the behavior and the psychology of the perpetrator. 
Now, of course, everybody knows that that would be the unknown subject or unsub. Uh, Mulaney was trained in um, psychology. He happened to be a former monk mm. uh, before he joined the FBI. Mm. Uh, he, he, he was uh, very keen on the psychological elements. Uh, Howard Keaton, on the other hand, was known as this expert crime scene analyst. Together, they came up with this idea and that that you could do just that, that there was evidence that was left. Maybe you couldn't see, maybe you might, but it would all tell you something about the guy or the woman you're looking for. Uh, they, they started to talk about all of this. Um, J. Edgar Hoover himself, the director at the time, uh, saw it as, black magic. He mm. didn't like the idea. He was sort of an old school investigator as many of the boots on the ground in the United States were at that time uh, d- d- suspicious of this pop psychology right. this, this, this hokum uh, and he didn't like it. Well Hoover dies and more progressive leadership comes on at the FBI and these guys are given a little bit longer leash. So they begin to do some workshops uh, and talk about their idea, uh, trying to, to get it out there, but also to maybe do a little PR for, the, for this notion that, that wasn't gaining traction out there. L. Patrick Gray was then the FBI director, I guess, and uh, he doesn't have a fine reputation because of the Watergate days, but there was a light uh, shown on him for for a change, a good light, because he gave at least these guys some leeway to get their act on the on the road. The, the, the fact is, this is not just one murder or one disappearance. They start to link the fact that the same killer is out there stalking other prey, but he didn't just stalk little girls. He stalked older girls, too, which made it interesting, difficult. Well, like I say, the the, the FBI was completely flummoxed for weeks, for months. It was about eight months after little Susie disappeared that a teenage girl, a 19-year-old waitress named Sandy Smalligan, in a nearby small town of Manhattan, uh, goes missing. Right. There's no thought at that moment that these two cases are related. They're, they're, nobody's putting together the disappearance of a little girl in June and the the disappearance of a teenage girl in uh, February the next year. So. Uh, as they begin to do the normal investigation into the disappearance of this waitress, they find her car hidden in a barn on a remote abandoned ranch. As they begin to look closer at this area, they find these little bone shards scattered all over the place, as almost thrown to the wind and and they collect as much of this as they can, and they send it off to the Smithsonian. Uh, very quickly, the Smithsonian gets back and says, 
yes, these are the bones of a teenage woman, late teens, early 20s. Uh, and it doesn't take much to say with the, the car sitting right there that right. This, is, this is probably our woman. But, says the Smithsonian, there are a lot of bones mixed in here that are the bones of a much younger girl, uh, be under 10 years old. Yeah, now they put the two yeah, together. Yeah. It, this book, by the way, folks, for entertainment purposes, is as scary as Silence of the Lambs because you can just picture the way you write is brilliant. You can just picture this evil spot in the in the countryside and the investigators going through it. Wild, as they say, wild stuff. But let's talk a little bit about uh, the family of uh, the little girl because the Jaegers are amazing, particularly the mother. Um, and and I've never. You think this stuff only happens, quote-unquote, in the movies, but the communication that the mother ultimately has with the killer is pretty amazing. Uh, It is. Maybe we should back up a little bit and suggest that there finally is a suspect, and we'll let you read the book to find out how he starts to screw up. He is prime suspect number one. Why? Why do they suspect him? He he is eventually. The, the, The guy who ultimately becomes the suspect or the main person of interest is somebody who'd been on the radar of the FBI three times, mm. four times before they came to that conclusion. And part of that is because of the profilers. The profilers had uh, delivered their original profile uh, and laid out a lot of, uh, of the characteristics that they thought the unsub had. Because of that suspicion about this, this new black magic, uh, Dunbar didn't take it completely to heart. He Some of it made sense, but a lot of it didn't. So when the guy, the ultimately the right guy, comes on, the profilers are intrigued by that. Dunbar is not. Dunbar looks at this guy and sees a clean, uh, a clean cut uh, former Marine with no kind of uh, interaction with the law whatsoever. A, a fairly well-spoken guy, even a little handsome, uh, who, who could who knew a lot of the people around town. Uh, certainly, the cops. Uh, he gave him a lie detector test, which he passed. He gave him a second one, which he passed. So he's on the radar. Then he's off the radar right. three or four times. Right. Uh, it is uh, you. You know, you talked about the phone calls to the family, uh, and those play a big role too. And in the same way, the profilers are seeing uh, things that intrigue them. The FBI is not uh, until one of those calls comes, and. The, the the man on the other end of the line is talking to Susie's mother, who's sick at heart, who's grieving, who who wants to cry, but she doesn't. She stands in there with him. She asks questions, even as he's taunting her. He's he's trying to hurt her. He's he's being sadistic, but she stands there. She talks to him. By the end of that conversation, um, he has revealed 
that has some details about Susie yeah. that only the unsub could know. In fact, the FBI didn't even know yeah. what he told her. That blew me away, and I know uh, you investigated this and probably felt the same way. As brilliant, and I say that in quotes, as some of these killers are for a while, their vanity and their narcissism and their desire to hurt people really does them in. Because I kept thinking call tracing thing that we've seen in the movies a million times. Uh, he's on the line for a long time. And, and by the way, note to the audience, I mean, she received dozens, if not more than that, phone calls from phonies, from uh, scam artists, from people who were trying to get money yeah. out of her. So, Right. Jeepers. Well, and you're right about that. I, uh, but let's, let's be realistic. We're talking about the early 1970s. No technology, no forensic tool was well-developed. In fact, profiling coming aboard was a, uh, one of the first forensic tools beyond... Uh, some primitive blood typing and fingerprints that investigators had. So uh, the the other forensic tools were were I don't know being developed. Yeah. Uh, call tracing uh, could be done, but it was a little more clunky than we see on the TV. Um, it's a little more clunky today than we see on TV, where mm. they seem to be able to push a button and locate this person within inches of where he's standing. But uh, it, it, those phone calls also provide the profilers some new insights into this guy's personality. Uh, as I say, he's he's on the phone a long time. Yeah. He's first taunting and sadistic, but by the end of the phone call, because she has stood in there, because she has challenged him, because she's questioned him, he begins to lose it a little bit. He, he, he gets uh, a little weepy. He gets uh, a little uh, intimidated by her, which tells the profilers that here's a guy who has a problem with strong women and might have had a complex relationship with his own mother. Mm-hmm. So they're learning as they go. Uh, remember, they don't have any roadmap. <laughs> they're just, you know, they're, they're operating on experience and logic uh, and their own particular skills, but there's no rule book. Right. And he was a very meticulous individual in terms of leaving behind physical evidence. Although when you read the book, folks, you realize uh, he does sign in and put his name down in certain places that uh, ultimately is a dead giveaway. But, you know, I wanted to talk to you as well about the politics of this whole thing, because you, you focus on the FBI agents and they're struggling against their bureaucracy. But then you have the local sheriff. We can talk about him because he's long gone, but I mean, he is uh, Andy Anderson, and uh, I hate to say it sounds like a stereotype, but he's the local elected sheriff who's just trying to cover his butt, it seems, uh, and then wanting to take credit for it all. Well, and you're you're exactly right about that. He <laughs> is almost a cartoon character. Uh, he's certainly a caricature of of that uh, that western uh, small town sheriff character. He, uh, he's elected, so he's always worried about the next election. He's a good lawman, uh, but only for 
the kind of low-level things that you typically see in a rural, small uh, town in a in a Western uh, setting. Mm-hmm. So he he's got both the political going on. He's got the uh, I don't know lack of training, lack of staff uh, thing going on. Uh, I think he's a good guy, but. Yeah, and and in my research, I had a lot of people speak highly of him, but he's handicapped uh, by this political element, as well as just not buying this profile stuff. You know, it, he's like a lot of of uh, lawmen on the street who who believed that the way you solve crimes is a lot of footwork. A lot of talking to people and and a little bit of uh, Sherlockian deduction, uh, but it's not about criminal minds. Right. Although you can understand, based on the time period and where we are in time in 1974, 1975, this is this is ancient history compared to where we are today. So you can understand that. Um, at the same time, uh, when you have nothing and you just dead-ending it every stretch of the way to have these guys at least offer something obviously was uh, pivotal to uh, to moving things forward. The other uh, impactful part of this is the impact on uh, Pete Dunbar, the FBI special agent. He's sort of the linchpin in the middle of it all. And he, like a, like a lot of people, you can imagine, takes this home with him, really feels it, yeah. doesn't he? He does. He does. Uh, he's he and a lot of these lawmen are shielding their children. They they have information, not much more than what we've already talked about, mm-hmm. but they fear that this this unsub is out there that he's uh, he might want to exact some kind of revenge on them uh, or on their children. Of course, so yeah, they they take this to heart. Dunbar himself. Uh, is frustrated by uh, by the lack of of suspects in this. He's not getting good uh, tips. He's he's just I, I said it before. He's flat footed, and that bothers him too. Um, mm. It's you know we talk about the the trip he makes back to Quantico in the spring of '74, and he hears one of those workshops that we talked about by Keaton and Mulaney. And he, he, because he's completely flummoxed by this, he literally follows them off the stage down to their offices in the basement and presents his case. Uh, he, he's got a little girl and a teenage waitress uh, whose deaths are entwined. Uh, he... He's he's got a grisly case on his hands, but he doesn't know what to do. And these two guys think, well, this might be our chance to actually do one. It's a fairly low risk thing, uh, a fairly low risk case. Uh, yeah, and they pull together the case file and they deliver their profile. The suspect that's apprehended, his name is David Meyerhofer. Is that the way you say it, Ron? Okay. He's captured and uh, he's about to face justice, but he he gets away with that because he ends up killing himself, allegedly. This seems to be a a pattern in in criminal justice over the years, you know, with many people ending it before they get to trial. 
what a shame. I was thinking that this guy wasn't perhaps the first guy that they would study later in the series Mindhunter. They interview major killers, and this guy might yeah. have led to might have led to stopping or preventing others had he been around to investigate. Yes, he, uh, no doubt. Uh, it's worth pointing out that when they didn't know who might have done these crimes, one of the elements of the profile was that when cornered or captured, the, the bad guy would mm-hmm. likely try to commit suicide. Um, unfortunately, that wasn't taken seriously by that sheriff. And in fact, the sheriff um, actually didn't put the kind of protection on this, this bad guy, Meyerhofer, uh, because he just didn't want information out in the public yet, and he considered the jailer to have a big mouth. So he didn't pass along mm. that, that this guy, this Meyerhofer, might be a danger to himself. Uh, it, they, uh, they find evidence at his arrest that uh, is not only ghastly, but it, it almost assures that he's going to hang which was Montana's method at the time. And his lawyer, who who actually had believed Meyerhofer was just being harassed, was just being persecuted by the FBI because he was a little odd, uh, goes to Meyerhofer and is enraged and, and tells him, you're going to be executed. You're going to die. At that point, Meyerhofer says, could we get the death penalty removed from the table if I gave them more? And uh, the his lawyer is shocked, but he goes to the prosecutor and says, if you'll take the death penalty off the table, we'll give you two more murders. And nobody is more surprised than the prosecutor, than Dunbar, than the sheriff, mm. uh, because that, it, they had no idea. There, there, there were other killings that he might have done. So you you described the suicide, which is preceded by him confessing to a total of four murders in this little uh, rural, sparsely populated mm. Montana County. And and Ron, does that include the 13-year-old boy who died of the gunshot wound? Was he, uh, I think his name was Bernie, he was on a bridge and uh, yeah. he was shot by uh, by someone. Was it confirmed that it was uh, the shadow man? It was, eventually, when yeah. he confessed to it uh, after his arrest. Right, right. Up until that time, this little boy's uh, shooting on a bridge while he was just swimming, jumping off the bridge into the river, um, had been had been determined by the sheriff to be uh, an accident that that somebody out there had been shooting at rabbits or target practicing, and the bullet uh, went beyond and killed this little boy. Uh, it, it, again, because it was taken as an accident, it, it wasn't ever really chalked up as a murder. Uh, and 
that was out there. By the way, that happens while Meyerhofer is a senior in high school. Yeah. The Would... following year, another little boy dies in that same campground where Susie went missing. Uh, and in a case where somebody, well, in a case where his wounding happened inside a little uh, uh, Boy Scout pup tent mm. and surrounded by hundreds of other Boy Scouts at this weekend camporee. Mm. Uh, ultimately, again, the sheriff comes to the conclusion that, that this boy suffered a head wound and was stabbed during horseplay with other Boy Scouts, and that he died of that. And nobody's going to come forward, of course, and say, I I was involved. But again, it's ruled as uh, a tragic accident. Uh, and he, they move on. So these two boys dying in 1967 and 68 are really never connected to any murderer. To, to any idea that there was a murder. So, so so the capture of this killer is the closure for those families, probably the shocking closure to those families, I would imagine. Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly it. Um, it it's um, a story that I think needs to be told. And the image that I take away from this, and it's just me being literal here, or figurative, I'm not sure what the term is, uh, the hole in the tent. <laughs> the the, the hole. The hole that is cut by the killer to take the little girl in the tent, just there's nothing more scary to a parent than thinking that my child sleeping in my home, in this case in a tent with other children, is vulnerable. So that's that's what the lesson, the takeaway is. You know, you can yeah, never well, be too in safe. Anywhere. anywhere. In anywhere. Because you've got to remember that she's, she's jammed in there with her three brothers and sisters or his her three you know, siblings, and everybody's on top of everybody else. So how does someone in the dark, in the middle of the night, cut a, uh, a large hole in the side of the tent, reach in, pull out a little girl, and then disappear into the dark? And nobody hear anything, nobody feel anything, without her uh, crying out, uh, struggling, all of these things went into the profile. Right, which which then suggests Shadow Man is the perfect nickname for this heinous individual. Um, who, it is. Of course, they didn't call him that. No, no, no. But to, no, me, but, yeah. Yeah, to me, he was someone who was comfortable in the shadows. Indeed. Uh, ultimately, when we know who he is, we see the the daylight version of him, the daylight persona, which is clean cut, you know, articulate, friendly. And then this, this uh, darkened version that we can't see in many ways. Uh, and because he works at that, and he's very good at that. Uh, and it's scary. You're, you're absolutely correct. It's, the yeah. kids are not uh, invulnerable mm. almost anywhere. Ron, this story is so well-constructed. You're an amazing writer. Before I let you go, though, as we tape this podcast, we're two weeks into this first European war in 75 years, and you've covered war and, I imagine, on the ground. Just a thought as to what the reporters are going through right now and, and how 
difficult that mission might be? Uh, it, under normal circumstances, they are watching their six. They're they're trying to be safe. They're also trying to chase down these stories uh, to, uh, and they that they don't know where they are. Uh, it's ever changing battlefield. But they're trying to stay safe. But they're also trying to capture these stories. In this particular war, I have seen many times something that I didn't have an experience with, and that is these reporters, particularly TV reporters, actually uh, helping or sympathizing in some way with these uh, refugees, with the soldiers, reaching out and physically touching them, uh, you know, helping them across a bridge or uh, patting them on the back or something like that. And, and that seems to violate uh, kind of my old school journalism upbringing that, that you, you aren't part of the story. You don't insert yourself. You don't take a side. Uh, that's a little different here. And for reasons that we can all support, but uh, mm. we're here and they're there. Well, you're the author of Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer and the birth of FBI profiling. Awesome book. Absolutely incredible story. And the way Thank it's you. told, the way it's told, keep you up at night. Absolutely terrific. Ron Francell, F-R-A-N-S-C-E-L-L. Also the best-selling author of such books as The Darkest Night. Really appreciate it. And those stories need to come to light. Thanks for doing so. Jordan, thank you for making time for me your day. It's my privilege. Once again, Shadow Man, an elusive psycho killer and the birth of FBI profiling by Ron Francell, F-R-A-N-S-C-E-L-L. A totally engrossing story about catching a killer with an adaptive new science called profiling. I loved it. Thanks as always to Dan Tebow of Fast Twitch Media, to Ken Carberry and everyone at Chart Productions here in Boston where we produce this and countless other podcasts, voiceover narrations, commercials, and more. My book, On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, is available in paperback, ebook, and, of course, as an audiobook. Go to my website, jordanrich.com, to find out more. And thank you so much for choosing this podcast and downloading and subscribing. We really appreciate it. Till next time, this is Jordan saying, as always, be well so you can do good. Take care.